Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 229. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to Starship Sofa. It's a nice chunky size show today. We have two bits of fiction again like last week. And two fact articles. Now, did anyone spot the mistake last week? That's all I'm going to say. If you spotted it, clever. I was. I think it was Phil Ackerman over there on the forums. Phil spotted it first there. Yes. I'm not going to mention it. Just <laughs> there was a little mistake. Give you a heads up what's coming to day's show. First off, we have a little bit of fiction. The Space Mice Incident by Carl Frederick. Then we have Fact Article Everything by Morgan Saletta. Then our main fiction comes from M. John Harrison, Suicide Coast. Then, to round it all off, we have part two of Diane Severson's Poetry Planet, all to do with time travel. How fantastic show! So first off, Carl Fredericks, The Space Mice Incident. Carl Fredericks... Carl Frederick is a theoretical physicist, at least theoretical, he says. After a postdoc at NASA and a stint at Cornell University, he left the theoretical astrophysics at, for his first love, which was quantum relativity theory. <laughs> I struggle seeing it. A strange first love, perhaps, he says, in favour of the high-tech industry. He is chief scientist for a small company doing AI software. In the year 2000, he graduated from the Odyssey Writers' Workshop and a first-place winner in the Writers of the Future contest. He dabbles with the Scottish bagpipes and he enjoys the sport of fencing. He says a few years ago, due to a shoulder sprain, he started fencing with his left hand and it was like coming home. This story first appeared in 2003 in the July-August edition of Analog and it was a nomination for the Analog Short Story Award. The story is narrated by Jim Phillips. Jim was, as you know, on last week's show as a narrator as well. There's a hint. Jim, how are you doing, sir? Thank you very much. <laughs> so the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. The Space Mice Incident by Carl Frederick. Damn space tourists. Smiling pleasantly, Commander Hendricks lowered his teacup down onto the china saucer. He struggled to appear absorbed by Tate's words but his gaze wandered past the station guest and on through a viewport to the black of space. The crescent earth spun into view, and Hendricks leaned back in his chair to fight the vertigo. It was hard getting used to the spinning. Space stations should not spin. For tourists demand gravity, and they have the money. What did they care that it made docking a nightmare? By twisting his head a little, Commander Hendricks could see the other pod of the dumbbell-shaped station. 
He fervently wished that Mr. Tate was back in that pod, the tourist quarters, and mentally cursed the genius who'd thought up the Breakfast with the Commander program. And you'd think that for my five million dollars, I'd be able to have a long shower and not have to put up with stale French bread. Hendricks forced his eyes from the viewport. There's a limit on how quickly we can reprocess water, he said. I'm sorry. You are an honored guest, and we value you being with us, but I'll bet you value it. Five million smackers. Mr. Tate slammed down his own teacup. The fine china rang like a bell. You know, maybe I should have toured on the Eastern Star instead. It certainly would have cost a hell of a lot less. And I hear their Peking duck is superb. Yes, the Chinese station has a good kitchen. But I'm sure you didn't venture into space for the cuisine. And here on the quest... Suddenly, from the corner of his eye, Hendricks saw a small blur of gray fur scampering out of an air duct. A mouse. What the hell is a mouse doing here on a space station? Commander, are you listening to me? What? Oh, yes, of course. But I've just remembered an important test I have to oversee. A crucial test, in fact. Commander Hendricks stood. If Tate sees this mouse, he'll have kittens. I'm sorry we've got to end the breakfast so abruptly. But we'll talk later. I really am sorry, and I'll try to have something done about your complaints. He shepherded Tate to the door, and then rushed down to the lower deck to see the chief facilities engineer. You've seen them too? said Robinson. He sat at an electronics workbench, laser annealing iron in hand. Them? Commander Hendricks stared at the messy workbench, covered with mini-robot parts, and wondered how the engineer would ever survive on a zero-gravity station. Yes, said Robinson. I've been getting reports from around the station. He annealed a last connection on a device that appeared to be an artificial leg for a cat. Damned litter robots, they're always going down. He set aside his iron. We seem to have a mouse infestation. Hendricks leaned back against a bulkhead. Where the hell did they come from? Robinson put down his annealing iron. I don't know, he shrugged. The only possibility I can think of is that they came from the Chinese transport, the same one that gave us Vice Director Tsung. Hendricks grimaced at the thought. Demilitarization Inspector Tsung. Ridiculous. Yeah, said Robinson. The guy runs around like he thinks we're going to bomb Beijing. What are we supposed to bomb them with? Stale baguettes? Hendricks pulled up a chair and sat facing the engineer. How could the mice get from the Chinese ship? We would have seen them probably through the pressure equalization duct, before the main hatch opened. Five centimeter diameter. Only thing I can think of. All right. Commander Hendricks reached over to the intercom unit and requested Vice Director Tsung be found and sent to facilities engineering. Then he pointed to the electric coffee pot at the far end of the bench. May I? Help yourself. Hendricks poured himself a cupful. You know, I didn't join the space agency for this, he said bringing back the coffee and sitting. I feel more like a hotel manager than an astronaut. He stared into his cup, watching the wavelets on the surface of the coffee vibrating to the soft thrum of the air circulation system. The ESEU Space Station Quest. A crew of 80, a slew of experiments to oversee, and I have to spend most of my time pampering 12 tourists. Yeah, I know what you mean. Robinson picked up his coffee mug and took a swig. Where's the adventure? The danger. Commander Hendricks gave a short, bitter chuckle. Once, not that long ago, 
the public funded space research. I remember, said Robinson. Space was for all of us then. Now it's just another playground for the rich. Hendricks and Robinson both turned as Director Tsung came softly into the room. Director Tsung, thin and wiry, wore a military uniform, but without medals or signs of rank. His only adornment, besides his wire-rimmed glasses, was the compact video recorder he carried slung around his neck. Tate sported one as well. Why you send for me, please? Hendricks indicated a chair, but Sung remained standing. We believe, said Commander Hendricks, that there may be a problem with the transit ship, Shanghai. Shanghai, excellent ship. What do you think problem? The pressure equalization duct. We think a mouse or two might have romped through into this station. Sung smiled and gave an all but imperceptible bow. Impossible, he said quietly. There exists no mouse on Chinese transport. Then you've not seen any mice on the Eastern Star, either? asked Robinson. No mouse. Sung flashed a furtive, humorless smile. If you have mouse, do not blame China. Fine, said Hendricks. But until we find out what's happening, I'd appreciate if you wouldn't talk to it about anyone. No sense in upsetting the space tourists. Sung seemed amused. Your guests not like mice? He nodded and padded to the door. It's not problem. I keep little secret. Well, said Hendricks as the door closed behind Tsung. I still think they came from the Shanghai. I don't trust Tsung. Neither do I, said Hendricks. In any case, we have to do something about them. I assume there are no mousetraps on the station. You've got to be kidding. Hendricks smiled. How about you making some? Robinson slowly put down his coffee mug and glowered at the commander. I've got a doctorate from MIT in AI engineering, and you want me to make mousetraps? Yes. Robinson drubbed his fingers on the desk. What are you going to do with the mice? What? I don't know. Hendricks threw up his hands. Maybe send them down to the galley and have them made into mouse kebabs. I'm a vegetarian, said Robinson coolly. I'm asking you to catch them, not eat them. I'm a vegetarian because I won't kill animals. Hendricks let out a long breath. All right, I promise we won't kill the mice. But we can't have them running around loose. Please make some traps, okay? Okay. Robinson scratched his nose and then took off his glasses. He smiled. Yeah, this could be fun. You know, I think I can whip up some really interesting and non-harmful traps. That's the spirit, said Hendricks, getting to his feet. Keep me informed. After his scheduled sleep period, Commander Hendricks went down to see how Robinson was doing. He smiled as he stepped into the engineering lab and inhaled the acrid sweet smell of circuit annealing compound. It was a healthy, technological smell, and it masked the lingering aroma of French cuisine that pervaded the station despite the air recirculation filters. Robinson, as it turned out, had foregone his sleep period to work on the mouse problem. He looked exhausted. It's not that important, said Hendricks. Go get some sleep. Robinson, standing, shook his head. It's important now. The mice are developing a taste for Teflon. They're gnawing the coatings off the station wiring. What? Two shorts already. It's lucky all key systems are multiply redundant. Hendricks expected danger in space exploration, but not this kind of danger. How are the traps coming? 
Robinson sighed and plopped down at his workbench. The passive traps didn't catch anything. The mice don't seem hungry, at least not for the bait I'm using, so I converted a few litterbots to active traps, traps that actually go out and look for mice. Hendricks sat at the bench, opposite Robinson. Active traps. Interesting idea. Yeah, sort of a robot cat with hypodermic teeth and tranquilizers with radioactive tagging. We should have been able to just go around with a centillion counter and collect sleeping mice. From the way you're talking, I gather RoboCat didn't work. Yeah, right. RoboCat. Robinson shook his head. RoboCat seems to be too slow to catch mice. He chuckled. But he likes to catch crew members. He's bitten two of them in the ankles. They were each out for half an hour. Programming failure. Sedative dose is based on target size but it was supposed to abort for creatures much larger than a standard mouse. Hendricks wondered if his chief facilities engineer might be more of a menace than the mice. Okay, okay, so the cat doesn't catch mice. Call it back, and we'll think up another plan. I can't call it back. Why? Hendricks had the uneasy thought that things were escalating out of control. It's gone feral. Feral? How the hell does a robot go feral? Programming glitch. I'd forgotten the litterbots were meant to be autonomous. So you can't call it back? Hendricks sighed. And it can't catch mice. Robocat isn't fast enough. Even the Mark II isn't quite fast enough. The Mark II? The second Robocat? Hendricks had an image of his crew dropping like flies. Well, no. More like a robot weasel. Robo-weasel? Commander Hendricks shoved back his chair and stood. My God, what next? Robinson made calming motions with his hands. Don't worry. Batteries will run down in 20 hours, max. Has it gone feral as well? Well, yeah. But I have another plan for the mice. Oh, yes? I've drawn up plans for tranquilizer guns. I'm having them made up now. Robinson rummaged through the surface of his workbench and produced a set of plans. Here, take a look at this. Nice design, isn't it? The tranquilizer guns shoot a sponge filled with sedatives. I've instructed that they be given to the crew. Whenever they see a mouse, pow! Robinson's face contorted in anger. I hate these mice. Hendricks considered the situation. Robinson hadn't succeeded in catching the mice, but not for want of trying. The man had worked himself silly. Don't take it personally, said Hendricks. We'll get them. But you have to get some sleep. I'll run herd on the mouse project. Yeah, I guess. Robinson rubbed his eyes. Thanks. I'll try to catch a few hours. Hendricks left. As he made his way to the command deck, he thought hard on the space mice problem and didn't see Tate approaching until it was too late. Commander, Tate called out. This is disgusting. I saw a mouse running around the deck as if he owned the place. I didn't pay five million dollars to vacation on a mouse-infested space station that doesn't even serve good coffee. I'm sorry, Mr. Tate, but I'm awfully busy right now. Hendricks hurried toward his briefing room, with Tate following close behind. Look, Hendricks, said Tate. We tourists pay for the space program now. If we all should decide to tour the Eastern Star instead of here, you can kiss your space station goodbye. Hendricks escaped to the briefing room. Four hours later... Hendricks got an intercom call from Robinson. You should be asleep, said Hendricks. Look, I've got an idea. Subsonics. 
I can whip up a subsonic mouse repeller and install it in the control room. It won't catch the mice, but it'll keep them from eating the wiring. Good, said Hendricks. Keep me informed. He turned from the intercom, then stopped and leaned against a bulkhead. An idea had occurred to him, but he knew he'd need to be pretty darn sure of himself before making accusations. Hendricks wandered the decks in thought. He noticed crew members armed with mouse tranquilizer guns. As far as he could tell, no mouse had actually been tranquilized, but the crew seemed to enjoy playing with the weapons. After a while, he found himself in front of Robinson's lab, and he went in. I wonder, said Hendricks, how often do mice have to eat? What are you getting at? Robinson stretched back in his chair. Are you saying we should just put out some tranquilizer-laced cheese? No, it's not that, said Hendricks. Mice have to eat, and the station keeps its food in sealed metal compartments. Robinson started to absentmindedly scratch his ear with his live and healing iron, but stopped in time. You mean someone must be feeding them? Yes. Sabotage? Robinson put down the iron. Could be. Who? Commander Hendricks shrugged. I don't know. But Vice Director Tsung comes to mind. Robinson whistled between his teeth. Wow. That could cause an international incident. I know. Hendricks stood to leave. It makes your sonic repeller project very important now. When you get some results, come to my ready room, and don't talk about it to anyone, especially Tsung. Understood. As the door opened, Scott paused. And maybe you'd better repossess your tranquilizer guns. I don't think they're working, and now that they're armed, the crew seem a little unpredictable. Striding to the command deck, Hendricks tried to put the mouse problem out of his mind for a few hours. He had to oversee an EVA shell integrity test, and then there was a duty roster to approve. And the oxygen generators seemed to be running a little hot. Suddenly, as if a switch had been thrown, he found he was angry. Roaring angry. He hated that pig, Tate, and Sung was no better. Hendricks was mad at the world. This wasn't his idea of what it meant to be an astronaut. Afraid that he'd say or do something he'd later regret, Hendricks went to his cabin to wait for the mood to pass. In his quarters, he squandered some time playing chess with a computer and looked up from the screen only when he heard a heavy knock on his door and Tate's voice coming over the intercom. Commander Hendricks threw open the door. What the hell do you want? Mr. Tate stood there, wide-eyed and open-mouthed. Well, Hendricks gave Tate no time to answer. If you're going to complain again that you think your five million dollars means we have to wipe your nose when you sneeze, don't bother. In fact, I'll let you guess where you can stuff your five million dollars. Commander Hendricks slammed the metal bulkhead door in the man's face and stalked back to his computer. Shaking, he sat down and took a couple of deep breaths. Then, as abruptly as it came, his anger vanished. He felt like his old self. He laughed. So that's all there was to it. I merely had to tell off that bastard. And he shook his head. I must be losing my mind. He headed for the door. He had to hunt down Tate and offer the swine an in-person apology. I hate to do this, but it's better than a court-martial. Just as he got to the door, he heard Robinson's voice at the door intercom. Hendricks opened the door and then jumped back. Robinson stood there, his white lab coat covered in blood-red blotches. Oh, my God, said Hendricks. What happened? Look, you can tell me as we go across to medical. Robinson held up a hand. No, no, it's not blood. It's ketchup. I'm fine. What? 
I switched on the sonic repeller and then went to collect the tranquilizer guns from the crew. Big mistake. Robinson tried to brush some dried ketchup from his lab coat. Since they couldn't get any mice with the guns, they'd replaced the sedative drops with ketchup and were using them for paintball. And they did that to you? Well, yeah, but it was my own fault, really. The sonic repellers do repel mice, but the subsonics also make people nervous and mad as hell. The crew weren't exactly eager to return the guns. He stopped to lick some dried ketchup from his fingers. But they were much more reasonable when I turned off the repellers. Oh my God, Tate, said Hendricks. That's why I told him off. He rushed to the intercom, but the space tourist wasn't in his cabin. Hendricks left a message of apology. Thinking about Tate and the man's complaints, Hendricks got an idea. He turned to the engineer. You know, I think I know what's going on. The mice must be an attempt to discredit our station and get more tourism for the Eastern Star. You think so? I can't think of any other possibility. Boy, I'd hate for that to be true. I order out Chinese from the Star a couple of times a month. But it's expensive. You wouldn't believe how much Tsung charges for deliveries. What? You mean that's why Tsung shuttles back and forth between stations so often? Yeah, and he brings our French cuisine back to the Star. Robinson shrugged. I thought you knew. Everyone knows. In fact, Tsung's going back in an hour or so, taking a beef bouillon for a political bigwig. The chef told me. A smile slowly diffused across Commander Hendricks's face. Tsung is going back in an hour? Yeah. Why? Do you think, said Hendricks, that you could turn on your sonic repellers again when the Chinese transport docks with us? I guess. What for? And could you array the repellers so that they drive the mouse back through the pressure duct into Tsung's ship? Yeah, I think it could be arranged. He laughed. In fact, if you don't mind, I'll do it now. And then I've got to get some sleep. He headed for the door. Just then came a high-pitched yelp from the corridor. Hendricks and Robinson ran to the door and looked out just in time to see a crew member keel over and crumple to the floor. A cat-like animal darted down the corridor and disappeared around a corner. Robocat? asked Hendricks as he ran to the fallen crewman. Afraid so. Robinson went over to help carry the crewman to a chair. He'll come out of it in twenty minutes or so. I'll see to him, said Hendricks. Go and set up the repellers. And for God's sake, watch your ankles. As Robinson started down the corridor, a voice from the station intercom announced that Hendricks was wanted on the command deck for a communication from the space agency. Hendricks stood bolt upright and stared at the intercom. Then, oblivious to the unconscious crew member who just slid noiselessly to the floor, Hendricks rushed back to the command deck. Switching on the video, Hendricks saw the shiny, bright epaulets of an admiral. Even though Hendricks was sitting, he still managed to snap to attention. Admiral, sir. Commander Hendricks reporting. The admiral wasted no time on small talk. Two hours ago, we intercepted the following video from Chinese TV. He pressed a button, and a video insert appeared on Hendricks's computer screen. The commentary was in Mandarin, but Hendricks hardly needed a translation. The video showed first a corridor in the space station, with two mice scampering through a bulkhead door. Good God, said Hendricks under his breath. The video then switched to a scene of three crew members shooting tranquilizer guns at a fleeing mouse. The mouse got away. Hendricks got a fleeting mental image of that court-martial. Suddenly he felt very anxious and assumed that Robinson had turned on the subsonics. At least he hoped that's why he felt anxious. 
Finally, the video showed another four crew members shooting each other with paintball-modified tranquilizer guns. Hendrix's skin tingled as he visualized himself being boiled in oil. Sir, I can explain. Is this true? asked the admiral. Yes, sir. But it was sabotage. The mice were smuggled on board. No doubt, said the admiral with a wave of his hand. But good work, commander. Excuse me? Just a half hour ago, the Chinese released an English-language version. The American networks aired it. And right off, Silicon Valley executives were phoning in droves, eager to plunk down millions to play paintball in space. But they want zero-G. Hendrick sat open mouth as the admiral went on. Where did you get those guns? My chief facilities engineer designed and made them. Good job. This is a coup. Just as the aging SF types are dying out, the young high-tech billionaires want to go up. The admiral slapped his deck for emphasis. I need an operations plan to spin down the station. Hendricks didn't trust himself to speak. He felt giddy and anxious at the same time. Now, said the admiral. I need that plan now. Yes, sir. Command out. And the admiral on the screen went dead. Hendricks smiled. He'd hoped for the day the station returned to zero-G operation and had prepared a spin-down plan just in case. He accessed the plan on the computer and downloaded it to Mission Control. This should impress the old buzzard. He stood to leave the ready room, but had to steady himself against an earthquake-like tremor. And a moment later, he felt his anxiety vanish. No doubt the Chinese transport had just undocked, and Robinson had turned off the sonic repellers. Hendricks paused and then sat at the console again. He might as well have some fun. He certainly deserved it. Whistling happily, he established ship-to-ship with the Chinese transport and asked to speak to Tsung. After a few moments, Tsung appeared on screen wearing, in addition to his uniform, the hint of a smile. Ah, Commander Hendricks. What I can do you? Well, for starters, you can explain why you told about the mice when you'd agreed not to. So sorry, Tsung smiled, nodding his head in a ritual bow. And what would you say... Hendricks went on, carefully avoiding an outright lie. If I told you we have genetic tests that show the mice are Chinese mice. Tsung's smile vanished. He spoke to someone off-camera in Mandarin, then leaned forward into the camera. We must respectfully disagree. We say they're not Chinese mouse. Hendricks leaned forward as well. Come on, Tsung. Why did you do it? Regrettable, said the vice director. But when America find out about mouse... No one want to visit your station, and... Tsung took off his glasses and looked down at them. All your guests are belong to us. Hendricks was about to laugh in Tsung's face, but he heard a sudden yelp and saw a crew member in the Chinese transport go limp in the transport's zero gravity. Then Hendricks saw a small creature jump into view and then disappear into a vent. Tsung spun around at the noise, slapped his glasses back on, and spoke in rapid Mandarin. Hendricks reached over and broke off the connection. Robo Weasel 1, Chinese nil. He stood and left the command deck, hungry and intent on rewarding himself with a good meal in the tourist restaurant. The future looked bright. The station would go zero-G. Research and exploration would be important again. And the Silicon Valley types might actually help in the research. Whistling, he strode toward the capsule tram to the tourist pod, but he had barely gone ten meters when Tate intercepted him. Commander Hendricks, your apology was unacceptable. I think you owe me more than... I'm sorry, Mr. Tate, I don't have time to talk to you now. Hendricks continued on his way. How dare you turn your back on me? When I get home, I'm going to launch a... Hendricks didn't break stride nor turn around. With the commander's compliments, Mr. Tate, kindly go to hell. Tate shouted a string of obscenities, 
which was broken off by a short scream. Startled, Hendricks turned around in time to see Mr. Tate fall to the deck and a fleeing creature leap for a vent. Thank you, Robocat. Apparently drawn by the scream, a crew member ran into the corridor. He stopped as he saw Tate sprawled on the deck. Robocat? Hendricks gave a fleeting smile. Could you see that he gets carried back to his cabin? Of course. But what do I tell him when he wakes up? He'll be as mad as a wet wolverine. Tell him... Commander Hendricks looked across, through a viewport, onto the cold blackness of space. Looking at the countless bright pinpoints of light, he felt again the familiar awe of the majesty and vastness of the universe. The commander turned to look at Tate sprawled supine on the deck. Tell him space exploration is dangerous. Hendricks continued walking, then stopped, swiveled around and hurried back toward the command deck. It occurred to him that if he could lure the Shanghai back, he might save the space agency some money. Shouldn't be too hard. Right now, Tsung probably wants to return some cargo to us real bad. Hendricks stopped at an intercom pod. Peanut butter. Mice are attracted to peanut butter. He keyed Robinson's quarters. The engineer was slow to answer, and when he did, he sounded groggy. Whoever the hell you are, please go away. This is Hendricks. We've got to get our mice back. I'm sure we have peanut butter on board. What? Our mice. We've got to lure them back from the Shanghai. Silence. Robertson, said Hendricks. Robertson, are you there? There you go. Don't forget, copyright is the writer. Call Frederick. Call, thank you so much. We've got a few more stories by Carl, so we'll get to them. And Jim, fantastic, sir. Thank you. Next up is our very own Morgan. Morgan, with his everything. Hello, and welcome to another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. Today, I'll be continuing a discussion of planetary ecology with a focus on population, pollution, and climate change. In this discussion, I'll be making connections between a number of science fiction books and films, scientific theories, and popular and influential works such as Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and Paul and Ann Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. Among the science fiction works I'll discuss are the film Soylent Green, an old Doctor Who episode, and The Space Merchants by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth, among others. Of course, as usual, it would be impossible in this brief reflection to do anything approaching a comprehensive survey of science fiction works pertaining to or dealing with the topics of pollution, population, and climate change, and such is not my intent. Instead, I'll hop skip through a discussion of the topics, illustrating them with works of particular relevance, or just works that I'm familiar with. Concerns about overpopulation, pollution, and climate change are not as new as many might think. Thomas Malthus predicted that population growth would outstrip resources, particularly food resources, in his famous and highly influential work, An Essay on Population, first published in 1798. Malthus writes, The power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce subsistence for men that premature death must in some shape or form visit the human race. The vices of mankind are active and able ministers of depopulation. They are the precursors in the great army of destruction and often finish the dreadful work themselves. But should they fail in this war of extermination, sickly seasons, epidemics, pestilence, and plague advance in terrific array and sweep off their feet thousands and tens of thousands. 
Should success be still incomplete, gigantic, inevitable famine stalks in the rear and with one mighty blow levels the population with the food of the world. Malthus's theory of an inherent imbalance in life's ability to reproduce itself and the availability of food resources had a profound impact on both Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace and helped to develop the theory of natural selection. But more importantly for today's discussion, Malthus's ideas were echoed and expanded in the post-World War II birth of the modern environmental movement. The idea of an overpopulated earth and attendant environmental degradation and disaster are major themes both of popular science works, such as Paul and Ann Ehrlich's 1968 Population Bomb, itself strongly influenced by two lesser-known neo-Malthusian works, Our Plundered Planet by Fairfield Osborne and William Vox's The Road to Survival, both of which were published in 1948. Along with the Cold War fears of nuclear annihilation and radiation poisoning, apocalyptic visions of both overpopulation and ecological crisis were major themes both in works of popular science and science fiction of the time. In 1962, Rachel Carson published her work Silent Spring, widely regarded as one of the most important and influential nonfiction works of the 20th century. Carson, a marine biologist by training, had become increasingly alarmed by the widespread and indiscriminate use of synthetic pesticides. She used the title, taken from a ballad by John Keats written in 1819 titled La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and its lines, The sedge is withered from the lake, and no birds sing. This vision of a spring without birds is a deliberately apocalyptic one, but Carson's book was carefully reasoned, and despite vicious attacks from Monsanto and the chemical industry, and, curiously enough, still today from libertarian groups, her book was widely credited with raising awareness about the dangers of indiscriminate pesticide use, and in particular DDT, including health effects and insect resistance, and bringing into public awareness the idea that attempts to control nature might go horribly wrong. By the 1970s, due in large part to work such as Carson's Silent Spring and the Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, pollution, overpopulation, and environmental degradation had become household topics and incorporated into popular culture. Some science fiction writers had been well ahead of this trend. In 1952, Frederick Pohl and Cyril M. Kornbluth published their dystopic satire, The Space Merchants, a brilliant satirical criticism of rampant consumerism unchecked capitalism, environmental plunder, and overpopulation, which regularly garnishes praise as one of the best science fiction novels of the last century. Reading it last month for the first time, I was struck by just how timely the satire still seems. It is a world in which advertisers live as an elite caste and hordes of consumers are relegated to the crowded stairways of corporate skyscrapers or debt slavery in factories and kept addicted to their corporation's products, including imitation coffee, or coffee s, cigarettes, and soft drinks through the use of addictive additives. The American government is run by senators from semi-hereditary corporations such as Fowler Schocken, where the protagonist, Mitch Courtenay, works as a senior advertising copywriter. The book's plot centers around the colonization plans for Venus, the guerrilla conservationists or concies, and the way Courtenay's fortunes and political ideology changed drastically after Concy plot ends with him in indentured servitude and debt slavery to the Chlorella Corporation, where he works as a scum skimmer, described in this clip from the CBS Radio Workshop's 1957 adaptation. 
products is a strange, glutinous, ever-growing organism called Chicken Little. It provides one-third of the world with the protein that replaces old-fashioned meat. It grows in huge, sweating vats. And only the constant slicing keeps it from overgrowing and covering Costa Rica and its neighbors, or in time, the face of the earth. I had written of its delights many times in the agency, but I now came to know it at first hand. I was assigned to skim the scum which dripped from its side. If, like me, you like old-time radio dramas, be sure to tune in on Paul Finch's Theater of the Mind here on StarshipSofa.com. Back to the space merchants. It may be that Chicken Little, according to the website Technology.com, that's Techno-V-E-L-G-Y.com, is the first science fiction reference to vat-grown food. Indeed, the book is credited by the Oxford English Dictionary with a number of firsts, coining the terms Moonsuit, Tri-D, R&D for Research and Development, Sucker Trap, and Soya Burger. And speaking of Soya Burgers, visions of a vastly overpopulated, ecologically devastated planet gained popularity in the 1970s, and the idea that the Earth's vast hordes would be relegated to eating manufactured food was a popular trope in these apocalyptic environmental dystopias, of which perhaps the best known is Richard Fleischer's 1970 film Soylent Green, inspired by and loosely based on Harry Harrison's novel Make Room, Make Room, published in 1966. Soylent Green is so frequently referenced in popular media and culture, such as The Simpsons, Mmm, Soylent Green, that many who have never seen the movie have nevertheless heard or seen frequent reference to it. A couple of years ago, I watched the movie for the first time and was pleasantly surprised by how well it had aged. The film portrays an overpopulated New York and a world in the throes of global warming. Yes, the movie was made in 1970, and it is a world of food shortages and ecological collapse. Indeed, the film may be the first Hollywood film to mention the greenhouse effect as an environmental problem. It centers on the protagonist, Robert Thorne, played by Charlton Heston, and his roommate, Saul Roth, played by Edward G. Robinson in his final screen performance. Investigating a murder, Roth discovers a report by Soylent Corporation, which reveals the truth about the popular food wafer, Soylent Green. And in case you don't know, it's not soy and lentils, as in Harry Harrison's novel. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him, Soylent Green is people! In this early scene, Saul talks to Thorne about the good old days of real food. Why, in my day, you could buy meat anywhere. Eggs they had, real butter, fresh lettuce in the stores. I know, Saul, you told me before. How can anything survive in a climate like this? A heat wave all year long. A green greenhouse effect. effect. Everything, Everything is, is burning, burning up. Another film that uses the trope or cliche of artificial food as a symbol of the larger control and destruction of the natural environment, is the 1972 film Silent Running, directed by Douglas Turnbull, which I have mentioned several times, and which has also been featured in Film Talk here on the Starship Sofa as well. In this scene, Freeman Lowell, played by Bruce Dern, has a heated exchange with his shipmates over the virtues of natural food, including a cantaloupe he has grown in the ship's forest biodomes, the last remnants of Earth's forest, while his shipmates enjoy their plate of colored artificial foods. Well, do you have to eat that stuff in there? It stinks. 
He never let up to me. Feelings. I'd like to know what any one of you knows about real food. Well, what do you mean, real food? What, out of the dirt? That's real food, isn't it? That's right. This happens to be nature's greatest gift. To a celibate, maybe. <laughs> you wasn't good. Maybe you know something we don't. Hmm? Hey, look, give me a slice of that cantaloupe, huh? Hey, don't ask Law for a slice. I'd be delighted to give you a slice of that cantaloupe. Just sit down and shut up. Sit down, sit down, sit down. And shut up and leave me alone, all of you, now, and let me eat. Hey, now, what's a big deal? I can't see the difference between that and this, anyway. You don't see the difference? The difference is that I grew it. That's what the difference is. That I picked it and I fixed it. And it has a taste and it has some color. And it has a smell. And that it calls back a time when there were flowers all over the earth. And there were valleys. And there were plains of tall green grass that you could lie down in that you could go to sleep in. And there were blue skies, and there was fresh air, and there were things growing all over the place, not just in some domed enclosures blasted some millions of miles out into space. Another early example of science fiction's engagement with environmental themes comes from this 1964 episode of Doctor Who, Planet of the Giants, directly influenced by Carson's warnings in Silent Spring of DDT's deadly effects on beneficial insects. In this clip, the immoral industrialist Forrester is confronted by civil servant Arnold Farrow, who discovers, shortly after, just how ruthless Forrester can be. Mr. Forrester, isn't it? We've spoken the telephone. Yes, I got here as quickly as I could. I hope you haven't taken any action yet. Not yet, but I have written my report. You do realize what's at stake here, Mr. Farrow. The early experiments were noted by the Ministry, welcomed, in fact. I've already geared factories, advertising, and all the rest of it to start pushing DNCs. I'm sorry about that, but I can't give you the approval that you want. We could, of course, spend more time on the refinery. Well, there's much more to it than that, as I mentioned to you on the telephone. You want to bring in another expert, go over the tests again? You're not the scientist, are you? Well, let me put it this way. On the surface, DN6 appeared to have all the characteristics of a major breakthrough in the manufacture of insecticides. Well, and I can quite understand why you pinned all your hopes on it, particularly as my own minister was so enthusiastic. But the very exhaustive tests I have made show that DN6 is totally destructive. Well, that was the idea, wasn't it? I mean, Smithers said it'll even prevent locusts from breeding. I don't think... them out altogether. I don't think I'm making myself quite clear. There are many insects which make a vital contribution to agriculture, and these insects must not die. Of course, today, global warming and attendant climate change are big topics, and science fiction writers have once again been at the forefront of popularizing scientific knowledge. Frederick Pohl's 1989 Homecoming, otherwise an alien contact story, features an Earth devastated by climate change. In this heading for Chapter 13, Pohl describes an Earth very similar to that which computer simulations tell us will happen if our CO2 emissions continue unchecked. If a world traveler of the 20th century were brought back, he would wonder greatly at the map of the Earth. The coastlines are all different. All the land San Francisco and Chicago had stolen from the lake in the bay, the waters have won back as they rose. Libya's Katara Depression is a brackish lake, half rainwater and half overspill from the Mediterranean Sea. Bermuda is a memory. The polders of the Netherlands are part of the North Sea again, and a sluggish oozing of the lower Mississippi River has drowned out New Orleans. The main channel of the river has long since broken through the dams 
put up by the Corps of Engineers and forced its way through the Atchafalaya. Hawaii has lost the tourist traps of Waikiki. Though there is plenty of the islands left, they began as volcanic mountains after all. All along the east coast of North America, the low, sandy barrier islands are only shoals now. Sharks nose hungrily through the gambling casinos of Atlantic City, and coral grows on the golf courses of Georgia's Sea Islands. New York Bay is three times its former size, pocked with islands, and the Statue of Liberty stands with her feet wet up to the ankles. When the ice around the North Pole began to melt, it made no difference. It was floating anyway, and so it added nothing to the oceanic water levels. The glaciers were a different matter, but even they were as nothing, nothing at all, compared to what happened when Antarctica lost the Ross ice shelf. So the edges of the continents are awash, and in their centers the searing, drying winds have left new dust bowls. Also published in 1989, David Brin's Earth remains one of the best works of environmental science fiction I have read. In fact, environmental issues are a common theme of all of Brin's works, and I will speak of more of them in the next installment. Earth was published as climate change and the greenhouse effect were gaining major popular interest. Al Gore's Earth in the Balance was published a few years later. This was a time when recycling became a household word and the Internet was still the private domain of nerds. Bryn's Earth is a complex cautionary tale and features a number of environmental issues, from refugee crises to the loss of biodiversity and eco-terrorism. He also manages to predict a lot of technical innovations including the Internet becoming a major source of media coverage. And, like Pohl, Bryn uses the image of the mighty Mississippi River breaking free of its massive floodworks as a larger symbol of the ultimate futility of man's attempts to control nature. Writes Bryn, As the trimmers faded, Logan glanced north toward a line of levees the Corps of Engineers had erected long ago to reassure a trusting public that all eventualities were predictable, controllable, and would be forever. Amen. In the distance, a new sound could be heard, not as deep or grating as the quakes, but just as frightening. It felt like vast herds of wild beasts on the rampage. That was when Logan knew, with utter certainty, that the Corps had been wrong, that all things must come to an end. The concrete prison, forged by man to control a mighty river, had finally cracked, and a crack was all the prisoner needed. The father of all waters was free at last, long delayed, the Mississippi was coming to Atchafalaya. This passage brings to mind another, this from Percy Shelley's 1818 sonnet, Ozymandias, describing the shattered remains of an Egyptian statue and its inscription. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. On his excellent blog, Bryn revisits the passage from Earth I just read and gives some excellent advice for the future of New Orleans and the Atchafalaya Valley. As an aside, another work from 1989, John McPhee's The Control of Nature, gives a journalistic account of the Army Corps' great struggle to tame Old Miss, along with other attempts by humans to, as the title implies, control nature. Today, global warming, caused by the greenhouse effect and its powerful ability to provoke climate change in possibly quite counterintuitive ways, is accepted by the overwhelming vast majority of scientists. A few oil industry sellouts and loudmouth, naysaying non-scientists like Rush Limbaugh accepted. One of the ways that global warming might have a counterintuitive impact on global climate 
is through its effect on global ocean currents, or the global conveyor belt, also called thermohaline circulation. Wallace Broker, a scientist who helped develop the idea of the global conveyor belt and coined the term global warming in 1975, has suggested that the melting of Greenland glaciers could force the Gulf Stream further south or even temporarily halt it, provoking suddenly abrupt and devastating climate change. In this case, a rapid cooling of North America and Europe, and he suggests that there is evidence that this happened in the distant past. This theory was the basis of the film The Day After Tomorrow, which, although taking license with just how sudden such a shift might occur, nevertheless presented Broker's theory in a fictionalized form rather well in this scene of what is, in other respects, a rather unremarkable special effects extravaganza. All right, all right, listen up, everybody. Listen up, please. We've got a lot of work to do, and we don't have much time, so let's get started, please. Borstein. All our grid models are worthless. I don't think grid models are going to be a lot of help here. The Canadians are reporting tremendous circulation moving down from the Arctic. In Siberia, there's a low-pressure system unlike anything we've seen, and Australia just saw the strongest typhoon ever recorded. Hang on, are you saying that these things are interconnected? We have to consider the possibility. The only force strong enough to affect global weather is the sun. What's NASA have to say? We've already checked. Solar output is normal. What about the North Atlantic current? What about it? I got a call last night from Professor Rapson at the Headland Center. He thinks the current has changed. Come on, Jack, how could that be? The current depends upon a delicate balance of salt and fresh water. We all know that. Yes, but no one has taken into account how much fresh water has been dumped into the ocean because of melting polar ice. I think we've hit a critical desalinization point. It would explain what's driving this extreme weather. Headland had some pretty convincing data. They've asked me to feed it into my paleoclimate model to track the next set of events. Hold on, Jack. Are you suggesting these weather anomalies are going to continue? Not just continue. Get worse. Another work I'd like to mention, because it is in a genre that occasionally deals with environmental and planetary ecological issues, is Neil Stevenson's Zodiac, the novel a thriller, or perhaps more accurately, an eco-thriller, pits Sanjaman Taylor, a Zodiac-mounted eco-activist inspired by real-life environmental scientist and activist Marco Kartoffen, against corporate polluters, the FBI who want him on eco-terrorist charges, which are false, of course, and a host of various baddies. The novel is Stevenson's second, and does not quite reflect the mature style of the author many consider contemporary science fiction's best, but it is fast-paced, fun, and topical. The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi is another sci-fi thriller with serious environmental themes, but it's on my shelf waiting to be read, so I can't really talk about it yet. Before closing, I'd like to point out that not all science fiction works with environmental themes are doom and gloom, and in this vein, I should really mention Ernest Kallenbach's 1975 Ecotopia, which depicted a West Coast breakaway nation formed of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, and put into print a vision of ecologically balanced living that was so cherished by the 1970s counterculture and sadly not yet achieved, although its emphasis on renewable energy, green building, and yes, plenty of cannabis use, are alive and well on today's West Coast and elsewhere. And with that figurative puff of smoke, I'll close up and exit stage. Today has been the second part of a discussion of what I've broadly termed planetary ecology, the first part focused on planetary comparisons between 
Earth, Mars, and Venus, and science and science fictional representations of our two sister planets. Today's discussion is focused on pollution, population, and climate change. The next installment will focus on exoecology, the planetary ecology of other worlds, as imagined by scientists and science fiction writers. This has been another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. Brilliant stuff, Morgan. Thank you very much, sir. Next up is M. John Harrison's The Suicide Coast. The story first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the July 1999 edition. It was on the Locus Poll Award for Best Short Story and it was a nomination for the Sturgeon Award in 2000. It also came out in M. John Harrison's The Travel Arrangements, a collection of short stories. Then Doswas picked it up for the year's Best Science Fiction, the 17th annual edition. It then came along and was in with the, the mammoth book of... Best New Science Fiction, the 13th edition. Later on, it was put in Things That Never Happened by M. John Harrison as well, published by Nightshade Books. M. John Harrison, Mike Harrison, his first novel was The Committed Men. It was published by Hutchison's New Authors in 1971. His last short story, according to the Internet Speculative Fiction database, was Keep Smiling with Great Minutes in 2008. That was published by Ian Waits Celebration. Starship Sofa has also played The Good Detective as well by M. John Harrison. Mike says he's got a new novel coming out, Empty Space, which will be published by Galance in mid-2012, so we look forward to that. I'll put a link on to Mike's blog. The story is narrated by Jack Calvary. Jack has got one of those voices, just mean voices. Jack, <laughs> and he's a lovely guy as well. Jack, thank you very much for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Suicide Coast by M. John Harrison. Read by Jack Calverley. 4.30 in the afternoon, in a converted warehouse near Mile End Underground Station. Heavy, persistent summer rain was falling on the roof. Inside, the air was still and humid, dark despite the fluorescent lights. It smelled of sweat, dust, gymnasts chalk. Twenty-five feet above the thick blue crash mats, a boy with dreadlocks and baggy knee-length shorts was supporting his entire weight on two fingers of his right hand. The muscles of his upper back, black and shiny with sweat, fanned out exotically with the effort, like the hood of a cobra, or the shell of a crab. One leg trailed behind him for balance. He had raised the other so that the knee was almost touching his chin. For two or three minutes he had been trying to get the ball of his foot in the same place as his fingers. Each time he moved, his centre of gravity shifted and he had to go back to a resting position. Eventually, he said quietly, I'm coming off. Will looked up. It was a slow afternoon in Mile End. Nobody bothers much with training in the middle of summer. Some teenagers were in from the local schools and colleges, 
A couple of men in their late thirties had sneaked out of a civil engineering contract near Cannon Street. Everyone was tired. Humidity had made the handholds slippery. Despite that, a serious atmosphere prevailed. Go on, we encouraged him. You can do it. We didn't know him, or one another, from Adam. Go on. The boy on the wall laughed. He was good, but not that good. He didn't want to fall off in front of everyone. An intention tremor moved through his bent leg. Losing patience with himself, he scraped at the foothold with the toe of his boot. He lunged upwards. His body pivoted away from the wall and dropped onto the mats, which, absorbing the energy of the fall, made a sound like a badly winded heavyweight boxer. Chalk and dust billowed up. He got to his feet, laughing and shaking his dreadlocks. I can never do that. You'll get it in the end, I told him. Me? I'm going to fall off this roof once more and then fuck off home. It's too hot in here. See ya, man. I had spent most of that winter in London, assembling copy for Max, a website that fronted the adventure sports software industry. They were always interested in stuff about cave diving, base jumping, snowboarding, hang gliding, ATB and so on, but they didn't want to know about rock climbing. Not enough to buy, my editor said succinctly, and too obviously skill-based. He leafed through my samples. The punter needs equipment to invest in. It strengthens his self-image. With the machine parked in his hall, he believes he could disconnect from the software and still do the sport. He tapped a shot of Isabelle Patissier, 700 feet up some knife-edge arete in Colorado. Where's the hardware? These are just bodies. The boots are pretty high-tech. Yeah, and how much a pair? Fifty, a hundred and fifty? Mick! We can get them to lay out three grand for the frame of an ATB. He thought for a moment, then he said, We might do something with the women. The good ones are French. Even better. I gathered the stuff together and put it away. I'm off then, I said. You still got a 190? I nodded. Take care in that thing, he said. I will. Fuck a wolf 190, he said. Hey! It's a Mercedes, I said. He laughed. He shook his head. Fuck a wolf, Mercedes. No one drives themselves anymore, he said. You mad fucker. He looked around his office. A dusty metal desk, a couple of posters with the Max logo on it, a couple of PCs. He said, no one comes in here in person anymore. You ever hear of the modem? Once or twice, I said. Well, they've invented it now. I looked around too. One day, I said, the poor wankers are going to want back what you stole from them. Come on, they pissed it all away long before we arrived. As I left the office, he advised, Keep walking a walk, Mick. I looked at my watch. It was late, and the max premises were in EC1, but I thought that if I got a move on and cut up through Tottenham, I could go see a friend of mine. His name was Ed, and I'd known him since the 1980s. Back then, I was trying to write a book about people like him. Ed Johnson sounded interesting. He had done everything from roped access engineering in Telford to harvesting birds' nests for soup in Southeast Asia. But he was hard to pin down. If I was in Birmingham, he was in Exeter. If we were both in London, he had something else to do. 
In the end, it was Moscow Davis who made the introduction. Moscow was a short, hard, cheerful girl with big feet and bedraggled hair. She was barely out of her teens. She had come from Oldham, I think, originally, and she had an indescribably snuffling accent. She and Ed had worked as steeplejacks together before they moved down from the north in search of work. They had once been around a lot together. She thought Johnson would enjoy talking to me if I was still interested. I was. The arrangement we made was to be on the lookout for him in one of the Suicide Coast pubs, the Harbour Lights, that Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoons are quiet, so we can have a chat, said Moscow. Everyone's eating their dinner then. We had been in the pub for half an hour when Johnson arrived, wearing patched 501s and a dirty T-shirt, with a picture of a mole on the front of it. He came over to our table and began kicking morosely at the legs of Moscow's chair. The little finger of his left hand was splintered and wrapped in a wad of bandage. This is Ed, Moscow told me, not looking at him. Fuck off, Moscow, Ed told her, not looking at me. He scratched his armpit and stared vaguely into the air above Moscow's head. I want my money back, he said. Neither of them could think of anything to add to this, and after a pause he wandered off. He's always like that, Moscow said. You don't want to pay any attention. Later in the afternoon, she said... You'll get on well with Ed, though. You'll like him. He's a mad bastard. You said that about all the boys, I said. In this case, Moscow was right, because I heard it not just from her, and later I would get proof of it anyway, if you ever can get proof of anything. Everyone said that Ed should be in a straitjacket. In the end, nothing could be arranged. Johnson was in a bad mood, and Moscow had to be up the coast that week on Canvey Islands, to do some work on one of the cracking plants there. There was always a lot of that kind of work. Oil work, chemical work, on Canvey Island. Haven't time for him, Oscar explained as she got up to go. I'll see you later anyway, she promised. As soon as she was gone, Ed Johnson came back and sat down in front of me. He grinned. Ever done anything worth doing in your whole life, he asked. Anything real? The Max editor was right. Since coring got popular, the roads had been deserted. I left EC1 and whacked the 190 up through Hackney until I got the Lee Valley Reservoirs on my right, like a splatter of moonlit verglar. On empty roads, the only mistakes that need concern you are your own. Every bend becomes a dreamy interrogation of your own technique. Life should be more like that. I made good time. Ed lived just back from Montague Road, in a quiet street behind the Jewish cemetery. He shared his flat with a woman in her early thirties, whose name was Caitlin. Caitlin had black hair and soft, honest brown eyes. She and I were old friends. We hugged briefly on the doorstep. She looked up and down the street and shivered. Come in, she said. It's cold. You should wear a jumper. I'll tell him you're here, she said. Do you want some coffee? Caitlin had softened the edges of Ed's life, but less perhaps than either of them had hoped. His taste was still very minimal. White paint, ash floors, one or two items of furniture from heels, and there was still a competition Klein mounted on the living room wall, its polished aerospace alloys glittering in the halogen lights. Espresso, I said. I'm not giving you espresso at this time of night. You'll explode. Well, it's worth a try. Ed, she called. Ed, Mick's here. He didn't answer. She shrugged at me as if to say, what can I do? And went into the back room. 
I heard their voices, but not what they were saying. After that, she went upstairs. Go in and see him, she suggested when she came down again three or four minutes later. I told him you were here. She had pulled a jigsaw sweater on over her racing green shirt and Levi's and fastened her hair back hastily with a dark brown velvet scrunchie. That looks nice, I said. Do you want me to fetch him out? I doubt he'd come. The back room was down a narrow corridor. Ed had turned it into a bleak combination of office and storage. The walls were done with one coat of what builders call obliterating emulsion and covered with metal shelves. Chipped diving tanks, hollow with the ghosts of exotic gases, were stacked by the filing cabinet. His base chute spilled half out of its pack, yards of cold nylon, a vile but exciting rose colour, a colour which made you want to be hurtling downwards, faced first, screaming with fear until you heard the canopy bang out behind you, and you knew... you knew you weren't going to die that day, although you might still break both legs. The cheap beige carpet was strewn with high-access mess, hanks of greying static rope, a yellow bucket stuffed with tools, Ed's petzel stop harness and knocked-about CPTs. Everything was layered with dust. The radiators were turned off. There was a bed made up in one corner. Deep in the clutter on the cheap white desk stood a five-gig Mac with a screen to design industry specs. It was spraying Ed's face with icy blue light. Hi, Ed. Hi, Mick. There was a long silence after that. Ed stared at the screen. I stared at his back. Just when I thought he had forgotten I was there, he said, Fuck off and talk to Caitlin a moment. I brought us some beer. That's great. What are you running there? It's a game. I'm running a game, Mick. Ed had lost weight since I last saw him. Though they retained their distinctive cabled structure, his forearms were a lot thinner. Without releasing him from anything it represented, the yoke of muscle had lifted from his shoulders. I had expected that, but I was surprised by how much flesh had melted off his face leaving long, vertical lines of sinew, fins of bone above the cheeks and at the corners of the jaw. His eyes were a long way back in his head. In a way, it suited him. He would have seemed okay, a little tired perhaps, a little burned out, like someone who was working too hard, if it hadn't been for the light from the display. Hunched in his chair and with that splashing off him, he looked like a vampire. He looked like a junkie. I peered over his shoulder. You were never into this shit, I said. He grinned. Everyone's into it now. Why not me? Wanking away and pretending it's sex. Oh, come on. He looked down at himself. It's better than living, he said. There was no answer to that. I went and asked Caitlin, has he been doing this long? Not long, she said. Have some coffee. We sat in the L-shaped living area, drinking decaffeinated java. The sofa was big enough for Caitlin to curl up in a corner of it, like a cat. She had turned the overhead lights off, tucked her bare feet up under her. She was smoking a cigarette. It's been a bloody awful day, she warned me. So I don't say a word. She grinned wryly. Then we both looked at the Klein for a minute or two. Some kind of ambient music was issuing faintly from the stereo speakers, full of South American bird calls and bouts of muted drumming. Is he winning? she asked. He didn't tell me. You're lucky. That's all he ever tells me. Aren't you worried? I said. She smiled. He's still using the screen, she said. He's not plugging in. Yet, I said. Yet. 
she agreed equably. One more coffee. Oh, will you do me a favour? I put my empty cup on the floor. Do your favour, I said. Cut my hair. I got up and went to her end of the sofa. She turned away from me so I could release her hair from the scrunchie. Shake it, I said. She shook it. She ran her hands through it. Perfume came up, something I didn't recognise. It doesn't need much, I said. I switched the overhead light back on and fetched a kitchen chair. Sit here. No, right in the light. You'll have to take your jumper off. The good scissors are in the bathroom, she said. Cut my hair. She had asked me that before, two or three days after she decided we should split up. I remembered the calm that came over me at the gentle, careful sound of scissors, the way her hair felt as I lifted it away from the nape of her neck, the tenderness and the fear because everything was changing around the two of us forever, and somehow this quiet action signalled and blessed that. The shock of these memories made me ask... How are you two getting on? She lowered her head to help me cut. I felt her smile. You and Ed always liked the same kind of girls, she said. Yes, I said. I finished the cut, then lightly kissed the nape of her neck. There, I said, beneath the perfume, she smelled faintly of hypoallergenic soap and unscented deodorants. No, Mick, she said softly. Please. I adjusted the collar of her shirt, let her hair fall back round it. My hand was still on her shoulder. She had to turn her head at an awkward angle to look up at me. Her eyes were wide and full of pain. Mick. I kissed her mouth and brushed the side of her face with my fingertips. Her arms went around my neck. I felt her settle in the chair. I touched her breasts. They were warm. The cotton shirt was clean and cool. She made a small noise and pulled me closer. Just then, in the back room, among the dusty air tanks and disused parachutes, Ed Johnson fell out of his chair and began to thrash about, the back of his head thudding rhythmically on the floor. Caitlin pushed me away. Ed, she called from the passage door. Help, cried Ed. I'll go, I said. Caitlin put her arm across the doorway and stared up at me, calmly. No, she said. How can you lift him on your own? This is me and Ed, she said. For God's sake. It's late, Mick. I'll let you out. Then I'll go and help him. At the front door, I said. I think you're mad. Is this happening a lot? You're a fool to let him do this. That's his life. I looked at her. She shrugged. Will you be all right? I said. When I offered to kiss her goodbye, she turned her face away. Fuck off then, both of you, I said. I knew which game Ed was playing, because I had seen the software wrapper discarded on the desk near his Mac. Its visuals were cheap and schematic. Its values self-consciously retro. It was nothing like the stuff we sold off the Max site, which was quite literally the experience itself, stripped of its consequences. You had to plug in for that. You had to be cored. This was just a game. Less a game, even, than a trip. You flew a silvery V-shaped graphic down an endless V-shaped corridor, a notional perspective sometimes bounded by lines of objects, sometimes by just lines, sometimes bounded only by your memory of boundaries. Sometimes the graphic floated and mushed like a moth. Sometimes it travelled in flat, vicious arcs at an apparent Mach 5. There were no guns, no opponent, there was no competition. You flew... Sometimes the horizon tilted one way, sometimes the other. 
you could choose your own music. It was a bleakly minimal experience. But after a minute or two, five at the most, you felt as if you could fly your icon down the perspective forever to the soundtrack of your own life. It was quite popular. It was called Out There. Rock climbing is theatre, I once wrote. It had all the qualities of theatre, I went on, but a theatre in reverse. In obedience to some devious vanished script, the actors abandon the stage and begin to scale the seating arrangements, the balconies and hanging boxes now occupied only by cleaning women. Oh, very deep, said Ed Johnson when he read this. Shall I tell you what's wrong here, eh? Shall I tell you? Piss off, Ed. If you fall on your face from a hundred feet up, it comes off the front of your head, and you don't get a second go. Next to that, theatre is wank. Theatre is flat. Theatre is suicide coast. Ed hated anywhere flat. Welcome to suicide coast, he used to say when I first knew him. To start with, that had been because he lived in Canterbury, but it had quickly become his way of describing most places, most experiences. You didn't actually have to be near the sea. Suicide Coast Syndrome had caused Ed to do some stupid things in his time. One day, when he and Moscow still worked in roped access engineering together, they were going up in the lift to the top of some shitty council high-rise in Birmingham or Bristol when suddenly Ed said, Do you bet me I can keep the doors open with my head? What? Next floor, when the doors start to close, do you bet me I can stop them with my head? It was Monday morning. The lift smelled of piss. They had been hand-ripping mastic out of expansion joints for two weeks, using standing knives. Moscow was tired, hung over, weighed down by a collection of CPTs, mastic guns and hundred-foot coils of rope. Her right arm was numb from repeating the same action hour after hour, day after day. Fuck off, Ed, she said. But she knew Ed would do it, whether she took the bet or not. Two or three days after she first introduced me to Ed, Moscow phoned me. She had got herself a couple of weeks cutting out on Thamesmead estate. They don't half work hard, these fuckers, she said. We talked about that for a minute or two, then she asked. Well? Well what, Moscow? Ed, was he what you were looking for then, or what? I said that though I was impressed, I didn't think I would be able to write anything about Ed. He's a mad fucker though, isn't he? Oh, he is, I said. He certainly is. The way Moscow said, isn't he, made it sound like any. Another thing I once wrote. Climbing takes place in a special kind of space, the rules of which are simple. You must be able to see immediately what you have to lose, and you must choose the risk you take. What do I know? I know that a life without consequences isn't a life at all. Also... If you want to do something difficult, something real, you can't shirk the pain. What I learned in the old days, from Ed in Moscow, from Gabe King, Justine Townsend, and all the others who taught me to climb rock or jump off buildings or stay the right way up in a tube of pitch-dark water two degrees off freezing and two hundred feet under the ground, was that you can't just plug in and be a star. You have to practice. You have to keep loading your fingers until the tendons swell. So it's back to the mile-end wall, with its few thousand square feet of board and bolt-on holds, its few thousand cubic metres of emphysemic air, through which one very bright ray of sun sometimes falls in the middle of the afternoon, illuminating nothing much at all. 
back to the sound of the fan-eater. The dust-filled Akai radio playing some mournful, aggressive thing, and every so often a boy's voice saying, Oh, shit, as some sequence or other fails to work out. You go back there, and if you have to fall off the same ceiling move thirty times in an afternoon, that's what you do. The mats give their gusty wheeze. Chalk dust flies up. The fan heater above the monkey house door rattles and chokes and flatlines briefly before puttering on. Jesus Christ, I don't know why I'd do this. Caitlin telephoned me. Come to supper, she said. No, I said. Mick, why? Because I'm sick of it. Sick of what? You, me, him, everything. Look, she said, he's sorry about what happened last time. Oh, he's sorry. We're both sorry, Mick. All right, then. I'm sorry, too. There was a gentle laugh at the other end. So you should be. I went along all the deserted roads and got there at about eight to find a brand new motorcycle parked on the pavement outside the house. It was a Kawasaki Ninja. Its fairing had been removed to give it the look of a 60s cafe racer, but no one was fooled. Even at a glance it appeared too hunched, too short-coupled, too knowing. The remaining plastics shone with their own harsh inner light. Caitlin met me on the doorstep. She put her hands on my shoulders and kissed me. Mmm, she said. She was wearing white tennis shorts and a soft, dark blue sweatshirt. We've got to stop meeting like this, I said. She smiled and pushed me away. My hands smell of garlic, she said. Just as we were going inside, she turned back and nodded at the cower. That thing, she said. It's a motorcycle, Caitlin. It's his. I stared at her. Be enthusiastic, she said. Please. But please? The main course was penya, with mushrooms in an olive and tomato sauce. Ed had cooked it, Caitlin said, but she served. Ed pushed his chair over to the table and rubbed his hands. He picked his plate up and passed it under his nose. Wow, he said. As we ate, we talked about this and that. The cower was behind everything we said, but Ed wouldn't mention it until I did. Caitlin smiled at us both. She shook her head as if to say, Children, you children. It was like Christmas, and she was the parent. The three of us could feel Ed's excitement and impatience. He grinned secretively. He glanced up from his food at one or both of us, quickly back down again. Finally, he couldn't hold back any longer. What do you think, then? he said. What do you think, Mick? I think this is good pasta, I said, for a cripple. It's not bad, he said, is it? I think what I like best is the way you've let the mushrooms take up a touch of sesame oil. Have some more. There's plenty. That's new to me in Italian food, I said. Sesame oil. Ed drank some more beer. It was just an idea, he said. You children, said Caitlin. She shook her head. She got up and took the plates away. There's ice cream for pudding, she said over her shoulder, just before she disappeared. When I was sure she was occupied in the kitchen, I said, Nice idea, Ed. A motorcycle. What are you going to do with it? Hang it on the wall with a climb. He drank the rest of his beer, opened a new one and poured it thoughtfully into his glass. He watched the bubbles rising through it, then grinned at me as if he had made a decision. He had. In that moment I saw he was lost, but not what I could do about it. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that just a fucker, that bike? I haven't had a bike since I was seventeen. There's a story attached to that. Ed. Do you want to hear it or not? Caitlin came back in with the ice cream and served it out to us and sat down. 
Tell us, Ed, she said tiredly. Tell us a story about that. Ed held onto his glass, hard, with both hands, and stared into it for a long time, as if he was trying to see the past there. I had some ace times on bikes when I was a kid, he said finally, but they were always someone else's. My old dear, she really hated bikes. My old dear, you know, they were dirty, they were dangerous. She wasn't going to have one in the house. Did that stop me? It did not. I bought one of the first good Ducati 125s in Britain, but I had to keep it in a coal cellar down a road. That's really funny, Ed. Fuck off, Mick. I'm 17, I'm still at school, and I've got his fucking projectile stashed in someone's coal cellar. The whole time I had it, the old dear never knew. I'm walking three miles in a piss-wet rain every night, dressed to go to the library, then unlocking this thing and st and stuffing it round the back lanes with my best white shorty raincoat ballooning up like a fucking tent. He looked puzzledly down at his plate. What's this? Oh, ice cream. Ever ridden a bike in a raincoat? He asked Caitlin. Caitlin shook her head. She was staring at him with a hypnotised expression. She was breaking wafers into her ice cream. Well, they were all a rage then, he said. He added, the drag's enormous. Eat your pudding, Ed, I said, and stop boasting. How fast would a 125 go in those days? 80 miles an hour? 85. I went faster if you ground your teeth, Mick, Ed said. Do you want to hear the rest? Of course I want to hear it, Ed. Walk three miles in a piss-wet rain, said Ed. To go for a ride on a motorbike. What a joke. But the real joke is this. The fucker had an alloy crankcase. That was a big deal in those days. An alloy crankcase. The first time I dropped it on a bend, it cracked. Oil everywhere. I pushed it back to the coal house and left it there. You couldn't weld an alloy crankcase worth shit in those days. I had three years' payments left to make on a bunch of scrap. He grinned at us triumphantly. Ask me how long I had it, he ordered. How long, Mick? Three weeks. I had the fucker three weeks. He began to laugh. Suddenly his face went so white it looked green. He looked rapidly from side to side like someone who can't understand where he is. At the same time, he pushed himself up out of the wheelchair until his arms wouldn't straighten any further, and he was almost standing up. He tilted his head back until the tendons in his neck stood out. He shouted, I want to get out of here, Caitlin, I want to get out. Then his arms buckled and he let his weight go onto his feet, and his legs folded up like putty, and he fell forwards with a gasp his face in the ice cream and his hands smashing and clutching and scraping at anything they touched on the dinner table until he had bunched the cloth up under him and everything was a sodden mess of food and broken dishes and he had slipped out of his chair and onto the floor. Then he let himself slump and go quite still. Help me, said Caitlin. We couldn't get him back into the chair. As we tried, his head flopped forward and I could see quite clearly the bruises and deep, half-healed scabs at the base of his skull, where they had cored his cervical spine for the computer connection. When he initialized out there, now the graphics came up live in his head. No more screen, only the endless V of the perspective, the endless, effortless dip and bank of the viewpoint, 
And what did he see out there? Did he see himself hunched up on the Kawasaki Ninja? Did he see highways, bridges, tunnels, weird motorcycle flights through endless space? Halfway along the passage, he woke up. Caitlin, he shouted. I'm here. Caitlin! I'm here, Ed. Caitlin, I never did any of that. Hush, Ed, let's get you to bed. Listen, he shouted. Listen! He started to thrash about and we had to lay him down where he was. The passage was so narrow his head hit one wall, then the other, with a solid noise. He stared desperately at Caitlin, his face smeared with Ben and Jerry's. I never could ride a bike, he admitted. I made all that up. She bent down and put her arms around his neck. I know, she said. I made all that up, he shouted. It's all right, it's all right. We got him into bed in the back room. She wiped the ice cream off his face with a Kleenex. He stared over his shoulder at the wall, rigid with fear and self-loathing. Hush, she said. You're all right. That made him cry. Him crying made her cry. I didn't know whether to cry or laugh. I sat down and watched them for a moment, then got to my feet. I felt tired. It's late, I said. I think I'll go. Caitlin followed me out to the doorstep. It was another cold night. Condensation had beaded on the fuel tank of the Kawasaki, so that it looked like some sort of frosted confection in the street light. Look, she said, can you do something with that? I shrugged. It's all brand new, I said. I drew a line in the condensation along the curve of the tank, then another at an angle to it. I could see if the dealer would take it back. Thanks. I laughed. Go in now, I advised her. It's cold. Thanks, Mick, really. That's what you always say. The way Ed got his paraplegia was this. It was a miserable January about four months after Caitlin left me to go and live with him. He was working over in Mid Wales with Moscow Davis. They had landed the inspection contract for three point blocks owned by the local council. Penalty clauses meant they had to complete that month. They lived in a bed and breakfast place a mile from the job. Coming back so tired in the evening, they just about had time to eat fish and chips and watch Coronation Street before they fell asleep with their mouths open. We were too fucked even to take drugs, Ed admitted afterwards, in a kind of wonder. Can you imagine that? Their hands were bashed and bleeding from hitting themselves with sample hammers in the freezing rain. At the end of every afternoon, the sunset light caught a thin, delicate layer of water ice that had welded Moscow's hair to her cheek. Ed wasn't just tired, he was missing Caitlin. One Friday night he said, I'm fucked off with this, let's have a weekend at home. We agreed we'd have to work weekends, Moscow reminded him. She watched a long string of snot leave her nose, stretch out like spider silk, then snap and vanish on the wind. To finish in time, she said. Come on, you wanker, Ed said. Do something real in your life. I never wank, said Moscow. I can't fancy myself. They got in her 1984 320i with the M-Tech pack, Garrett turbo and extra wide wheels, and while the light died out of a bad afternoon, she pushed it eastward, through the Cambrians, letting the rear end hang out on corners. She had Lou Reed retro on the CD, and her plan was to draw a line straight across the map and connect with the M4 at the Severn Bridge. It was ghostly and fog all the way out of Wales that night, Lost sheep coming at you from groups of wet trees and folds in the hills. 
Dragaran to Abergavan, one of the great back roads. Moscow shouted over the music as they passed a lonely house in the rain, miles away from anywhere, facing south into the rolling moors of mid-Wales. Ed shouted back, They can go faster than this, these three twenties. So on the next bend, she let the rear end hang out an inch too far, and they surfed five hundred feet into a ravine below Seffen Cock, with the BMW crumpled up around them like a chocolate wrapper. Just before they went over, the tape had got to Sweet Jane, the live version with the applause welling up across the opening chords as if God himself was stepping out on stage. In the bottom of the ravine, a shallow stream ran through pressure metamorphosed Ordovician shale. Ed sat until daylight next morning, conscious but unable to move, watching the water hurry towards him and listening to Moscow die of a punctured lung in the heavy smell of fuel. It was a long wait. Once or twice she regained consciousness and said, I'm sorry, Ed. Once or twice he heard himself reassure her, No, it was my fault. At Southwestern Orthopaedic, a consultant told him that key motor nerves had been ripped out of his spine. Stuff the fuckers back in again then, he said in an attempt to impress her. She smiled. That's exactly what we're going to try, she replied. We'll do a tuck and glue and encourage the spinal cord to send new filaments into the old cable channel, she thought for a moment. We'll be working very close to the cord itself, she warned him. Ed stared at her. It was a joke, she said. For a while it seemed to work. Two months later he could flex the muscles in his upper legs. But nothing more happened, and, worried that a second try would only make the damage worse, they had to leave it. Mile End Monkey House Hanging upside down from a painful foot hook, you chalk your hands meditatively, staring at the sweaty triangular mark your back left on the blue plastic cover of the mat last time you fell on it. Then, reluctantly, feeling your stomach muscles grind as they curl you upright again, you clutch the starting holds and go for the move. Reach up, lock out on two fingers, let your left leg swing out to rebalance. Strain upwards with your right fingertips. And just as you brush the crucial hold, fall off again. Jesus Christ, I don't know why I come here. You come so that next weekend you can get into the Cosworth engine to Merc 190E and drive very fast down the M4. No one drives themselves any more. To a limestone outcrop high above the Y Valley. Let go here, and you will not land on a blue safety mat in a puff of chalk dust. Instead, you will plummet eighty feet straight down until you hit a small ledge, catapult out into the trees, and land a little later, face first, among moss-grown boulders, flecked with sunshine. Now all the practice is over. Now you are en route. Your friends look up, shading their eyes against the white glare of the rock. They are wondering if you can make the move. So are you. The only exit from Shit Creek is to put two fingers of your left hand into a razor-sharp solution pocket, lean away from it to the full extent of your arm, run your feet up in front of you, and, just as you are about to fall off, 
lunge with your right hand for the good hold above. At the top of the cliff grows a large yew tree. You can see it very clearly. It has a short horizontal trunk and contorted limbs, perhaps 18 inches thick, curving out over the drop as if they had just that moment stopped moving. When you reach it, you will be safe. But at this stage on the climb, the top of anything is an empty hypothesis. You look up, it might as well be the other side of the Atlantic. All that air is burning away below you like a fuse. Suddenly you're moving anyway. Excitement has short-circuited the normal connections between intention and action. Where you look, you go. No effort seems to be involved. It's like falling upwards. It's like that moment when you first understood how to swim or ride a bike. Height and fear have returned you to your childhood. Just as it was then, your duty is only to yourself. Until you get safely down again, contracts, business meetings, household bills, emotional problems will mean nothing. When you finally reach that yew tree at the top of the climb, you find it full of grown men and women wearing faded shorts and t-shirts. They are all in their forties and fifties. They have all escaped, with their bare brown arms, their hair bleached out by weeks of sunshine. They sit at every four conjunction, legs dangling in the dusty air, like child pirates out of some storybook of the twenties. An investment banker from Greenwich, an AIDS counsellor from Bow, a designer of French connection clothes, a publisher's editor. There is a comfortable silence, broken by the odd friendly murmur as you arrive. But their eyes are interned, and they would prefer to be alone. Staring dreamily out over the valley, the curve of the river, the woods which seem to stretch away to Tintern Abbey, and then Wales. This is the other side of excitement the other pleasure of height, the space without anxiety, 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 the space without You are left with this familiar glitch or loop in the Maxware. Suicide Coast won't play any further. Reluctantly, you abandon Mick to his world of sad acts, his faith that reality can be relied on to scaffold his perceptions. To run him again from the beginning would only make the frailty of that faith more obvious, so you wait until everything has gone black. Unplug yourself from the machine and walk away, unconsciously rolling your shoulders to ease the stiffness, massaging the sore place at the back of your neck, what will you do next? Everything is flat out here. No one drives themselves anymore. That's it. Don't forget, copyright is Mike's. Mike, thank you very much for that. Like you see, there's a link on the Mike site. Do look out for his book, Empty Speech, in mid-2012. Next up is Diane's part two of her Poetry Planet, all about time travel. Diane! Welcome back to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. Today we'll be returning to our tour of time travel with six more poems by poets Mike Allen and Ian Watson, Anne K. Schwader, Dennis Lane, Jeffrey Landis, Terry Lee Ralph, and Paul Badger. 
In a world where time travel is normal, what do you suppose the effects on present or everyday life would be? Each of today's poems has a different angle on how time travel, or the attempt at it, would affect our day-to-day lives. The last poem is a lovely little romp. Mike Allen should be a household name around the sofa these days, but his partner in crime, Ian Watson, may not be so familiar. British Science Fiction Association award winner Ian Watson wrote the screen story for Spielberg's AI Artificial Intelligence, and his four decades of novels and story collections are all now e-books from sfgateway.com, except for his Warhammer 40K bestsellers. He placed third in the 2002 Reisling Awards with his poem True Love, which can be found in his collection The Lexicographer's Love Story from DNA Publications. In their poem Time Flood, they imagine the disastrous effects trying to block certain future timelines might have on the present. Time Flood by Mike Allen and Ian Watson Why did they damn the river of time some way upstream? How did they damn time itself? Maybe they fought, will fight, a probability war, striving to block some streams of possibility and reinforce others. A myriad dams might be made. Sabotage may ensue and rival dams to divert events a different way. The result is that time flooded backwards catastrophically, causing such eddies and whirlpools and deeps and shallows. A billion people lived their whole lives in mere seconds and expired in ignorance. Others were flotsam on the flood, seeing cities and civilizations rise and fall around them. Caught up in an eddy, a mother-to-be found herself kneeling at the grave of her great-granddaughter, stretched by the current. A soldier shot dead in a two-second war suckled for centuries at his mother's tit. By the time he hit the ground, a glacier was engulfing the battlefield. And me? And me? She grew instantly old in my shrinking arms as I became a child again, held tight by a blind crone. I lead her along by her wrinkled hand, my grandmother, so it seems, who still whispers endearments toothlessly. As we make our way through the ruins of millennia, wrecked rude huts, tumbled temples of marble, fallen castles, twisted girders of skyscrapers, and so much mud where at least food grows, in search of an Eden from where time may have sprung. A fountain of youth to restore to her some of my unwanted juvenility, But this earth of multiple eras is vast. Survivors are few, and mostly insane. And yesterday, for the first time, I saw, to my horror, the corpse of a dinosaur. K. Schwader ruminates on the futility of traveling back in time to avoid present disaster. Revenants of the Time Machine by Anne K. Schwader 
Regret made flesh has sent us back to this last pivot point before the plague we built, that viral war blade driven to the hilt in our world's heart. Too desperate to miss, we backflipped space-time till we felt the kiss of uninfected atmosphere, the lilt of healthy respiration, and our guilt already manifest, a viper's hiss. These younger selves cannot perceive our shades, despite this rattling like Marley's chains in fever-ridden bones. Their quantum blinders assure that they can never be afraid, because we never were. And so our brain's cursed certainty refutes hope of reminders. Revenants of the Time Machine first appeared in Tales of the Unanticipated, reprinted in Anne's collection Wild Hunt of the Stars, Sam's Dot Publishing, 2010. If time travel to the future were to become commonplace, assuming this future is fixed, good lord, what a bore life would become. A Month of Sundays by Jeffrey A. Landis In worlds where trips in time are less exciting than to the beach, or trips to Buffalo, a month of Sundays means just that exactly. You watch the sunrise any time you feel, have picnics just on days of sunny weather, and walk the dog the times you want to go. In time, when time machines are just as common as dishwashers or cable video, science is a quaint and useless notion. It's all been done. You only look it up. There are no mysteries left and no surprises, and people only die by growing old. In a world where doors may open to next Tuesday, and through your window breeze blows from last fall, war is obsolete. No one fights battles when tomorrow's paper tells who won. They typeset books straight from the printed copy, and no one even writes them first at all. Where is means was, and was means also will be. Last week is just another place to go. People never say, if only. If they have things to change, they just do so. You don't ask daisies if she loves you truly. They never tell. And anyway, you know. A Month of Sundays was first published in Aboriginal SF, March-April, 1991. The classic grandfather effect is Dennis Lane's inspiration for this poem, but the protagonist's motivations are really what's on his mind. Read by the poet, this is... Grandfather by Dennis M. Lane As a child, he was supposed to have been my protector. Pops, I called him. To the world outside, he was a smiling, kindly man, always the first to offer a helping hand. But I knew better. Late at night, when Mother was at work, he would come to my room, tell me how much he loved me, explain how I could show that I loved him. I was just a kid. What could I do? After too many of these nights, I went to my mother 
stood there trembling. Finally, I managed to spit it out, the filth that I'd endured, the horror visited upon me in the dark. And she refused to believe. With dead eyes, eyes that could not meet mine, and with lying lips, she said that I must be mistaken, that Pops was a good man, and he loved us both. Years later, I realised that Mother knew that she too had endured visits in the dead of night. But that could not excuse her. She knew, and she could have stopped it. But fear or shame stopped her. And so the visits continued. When I was old enough, big enough to wield a knife, I dreamed of cutting off Pop's head, like that of an ogre in one of my storybooks. But deep down, I knew that the death of my grandfather would not take away the pain, would not end the nightmares. I was broken. My soul could not be mended. And so I devised a plan. Despised at school, ridiculed for always having my head in a book, I kept my head down. I studied, and I escaped the town that had been my prison. Years passed by, years in which I rarely saw Mother, hardly ever saw Pops. As colleagues went home for the holidays, there was no smiling family at the fireside for me. I stayed in the lab, working, and the pieces came together. Until, one day, the test rig disappeared. Years of suppressing my tears, of not talking, came to my aid. The test rig disappeared and I didn't move, didn't shout in triumph. I just smiled to myself, sure that my plan was near to fruition. Pops was long dead. Mother was in a home. My fallen arches were a testament to a youth long flown. But Pops still haunted my dreams, still caused me to wake up crying. And he always would. A long weekend. The laboratory empty as I assembled the components, parts of a machine that I had conceived decades before. The other researchers had no idea what they had been working on all those years. No time for tests, no need for goodbyes. I set the dials, engaged the flywheel, and blinked out of existence. The machine brought me here, to a familiar street. I stand outside. That house, a building that, to me, has always been full of darkness. And I'm surprised by how bright, how new, how clean it looks. The comforting feel of the knife, smooth and cool against my flesh, reassures me as I walk up the path. Theory talks about the grandfather paradox, but I don't believe it. What can the universe do? Strike me down with lightning? Propel me back to the lab? I have travelled through time, and no theoretical restriction is going to stop me. I walk up the path and past the apple tree, strangely small, newly planted by pops. Then I slip down by the side of the house and into the always open back door. As I enter the kitchen, pops jumps to his feet. I pull out the knife and he stops. 
And usually for him, he has no words, no slick excuses. Words fail me, too. Not a day has gone by when I haven't thought about what I would say, how I would accuse my abuser. But now, here, there is nothing to say. Before he has a chance to move, I strike. The blade sinks deep, and his face goes slack, the way my mother's face went slack that day so long ago. Ago? When I told her, tell her, what Pops had done. The young-faced, smooth-faced, two-faced abuser slips silently to the floor, blood pooling around him. As his heart flutters and slows, I feel my own heart fading, like the propellers of a plane struggling to bite in air too thin. I wonder if, in that far-off old people's home, Mother's heart is also fighting, straining to beat just one last time. My blood-drenched hand seems to phase out of existence, flesh becoming transparent, while on the floor Pops gurgles once more, and, as three hearts beat their last, I know that he will not touch my unborn mother, that he will never come to my bed to break the child that I was. and. In that last instant, before all is remade, I smile. If we ever figure out how to make visiting the past a simple endeavor, I'm sure someone will come up with a computer program to help you explore your roots and visit your ancestors. You'd better hope that you have ancestors with better luck than in this poem by Terry Lee Ralph. Download program. Family history time portal with new genetic identifier enhancements. Program parameters. Spain, 1483. Run program. Program server alert. Are you sure? You may want to navigate away from this page or attempt with new parameters. Revised Program Parameters, Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. Run Program. Program Server Alert. Are you sure? You may want to navigate away from this page or retry with new parameters. Revised Program Parameters, Tibet, 1950. Run Program. Program Server Alert. You may be experiencing technical difficulties or need to clear your cache. Please try again or contact one of our customer service representatives who are standing by to assist you. Revised Program Parameters, Minoa, 1500 BCE. Run Program. Program Server Alert. Our technical department has determined that one or more of the following situations may apply. 1. You have not conducted sufficient research to determine the most propitious time to revisit your family and explore its history. 2. Your genetic material has been lost, stolen, or contaminated. And or 3. Which is the most likely, you and your family have really bad karma. Thank you for downloading the new and improved Family History Time Portal program. Please contact our office at your earliest convenience to learn about our new Family History Time Portal 
with new genetic identifier enhancements insurance providers. I didn't want to leave you having presented only doom and gloom and ennui, so our last poem is a humorous epic romp to learn to play drums with Thomas Hardy, of all things. But is that even possible? Paul Badger is a poet in the United Kingdom. He has had two verse dramas broadcast by BBC Radio, Wedding Rings and Space Suits, and Uncle Harry and the Melting Moon. Learn to Play Drums with Thomas Hardy by Paul Badger Last week, when the sun in the sky was eyeing me and asking me what I'd done with my life, and all the snooty clouds were an audience around it, waiting to judge my guilty response, I said, Son, you're right. I'm standing here and I'm standing accused. I haven't done a tenth of the things I promised myself I would do. I haven't been to China or flown a hang glider. I haven't bred whippets in Yorkshire or walked on the moon. It was fun concocting this list when I was ten in the back garden on an anonymous day and some distant summer holidays. And I know you were watching me build this list, and I know you remember it well. But you know what? And I say this with a full and deserved bucket full of shame. I haven't even learned to play a musical instrument. So the son said, Get yourself over to the music shop before they close and remedy the last one. And the clouds agreed. So I did. Inside the music shop, there were all the usual suspects acoustic guitars, electric guitars, recorders, and even penny whistles at ten quid each. But I wanted something different. A drum kit sat at the back of the shop like a crouching spider, all black, shiny, and waiting, and I was interested. But I knew it was no good trying to teach myself. So I walked along the rack of tutor books, where the thin things were flimsy and dog-eared from being looked through by school kids skipping class, and they sagged around the gray plastic of the wire holding them in place like pillows over thin belts. Among the books and pamphlets dedicated to the noble art and craft of hitting things with sticks, I found a tune a day and play in a day. But there was something else hidden behind them, a slim little volume called Learn to Play Drums with Thomas Hardy. I smiled my sixth former's smile to myself and thought, What a coincidence! It can't be the same bloke. But sure enough, on the cover there was a black and white photo of the fellow we've seen inside copies of Tess of the Durbervilles and the mayor of Casterbridge, looking like a headmaster disappointed with the latest results of the first eleven. Well, I was very curious. I was like a cat mincing around a fresh hole he happens to find in the baseboard in case there's some mousy fun to be had inside. You know what I mean? I paid my nine ninety nine and got it home. Now, it must be said, when I peeled the cellophane off, I was somewhat miffed to find this book only had one page in it. I mean, does it still qualify as a book if it feels like it's on a diet? At first, I looked down at the floor to see if an odd hundred pages had slipped out on the quiet, but there was nothing there, and I had half a mind to phone up the shop and give the owner some grief. But I looked at the page again. It just had a purple circle in the middle of it with the words, Put your finger here, written in a curve around it. So I did. Immediately I was swallowed up in a cloud of purple smoke, but before I could close my eyes or cough, the smoke cleared again. 
It smelt of lavender and was quite pleasant, I have to say, and I found myself in an old-fashioned study. In front of me was that same bloke writing at his desk, and he turned around, still looking like the same headmaster, still disappointed with the same first eleven. But when he saw me, he quickly smiled and shouted, "'Great! Another one to learn the drums!' And I thought to myself, "'Crikey! I've been transported to Thomas Hardy's study in Maxgate around the year 1890, where he's writing his famous and classic novel, Tess of the Durbervilles,' or, you know, words to that effect." He leapt up, shook me by the hand, and said, "'I want to teach you how to play,' and pointed to a cool-looking golden drum kit in the corner, surrounded by a bird's nests of cymbals. In no time at all, he taught me all he knew. The paradiddle, three-four time, four-four time, four to the floor, the walk on the moor, seven-eight, fifteen-sixteen, the snare-snap, the snare-whap, the rim-click, the rim-cluck, the tom-tom-roosh, the tom-tom-boosh, the bass slam, the bass wham, the bass heat, the bass meat, the tom-tom kiss, the tom-tom miss, the cymbal ride, the cymbal slide, the cymbal rattle, the cymbal battle, the floor-tom thwack, the floor-tom clack, the hi-hat dance, the hi-hat chance, the hit and the miss, the sudden bliss, the free-fall, the night-fall, the war and surrender, the rum and the whiskey, the mist in December, the winter avalanche, the summer rain, the biff and the dish, the love and the pain, the daybreak and the sunset, the disco soup, the country trot, the meat and two veg, the shiver and the shake, the fox and the rabbit, the bus conductor and the country mile, all the drummer's tricks ever invented. This Tom fellow knew them all. I said, listen, Mr. Hardy, I didn't know you could play the drums. He went back to his study chair, put his feet up on the desk and lit a ciggy. The past always has more going on in it than the present thinks, he said with a sigh. You lot in your time zone look back at some faded photos of us, some black and white moment, some smudged glimpse, and think that's all we are, people posing for photos with nothing left to do in the week. Or you think we're just names in history books, squiggles of ink that only exist to decorate the page and give the schoolteacher who's looking forward to his retirement something to fill the lesson with. But we're people like you with lives to live. Just because we're history doesn't mean we're only facts that just exist to please you. Here, let me show you how we get our kicks on Saturday nights. And with that, he led me round the back of his house, where there was a stage with musical instruments on it. He clapped his hands, and just like magic, characters from his latest manuscript appeared out of thin air. Tess of the Durbervilles walked up to the microphone with a blonde wig on her head, wearing a tight black leather miniskirt and thigh-length boots. Alex Stoke Durberville was on the electric guitar. Angel Clare was on bass. Thomas Hardy himself was on the drums, and um, Parson Tringham was somewhere at the back on the uh, church harmonium. But the overall sound was incredible. Tom smiled the broadest smile I've ever seen, looking now more like an enthusiastic and naive student teacher than a miserable headmaster. And he shouted, One, two, three, four! And they started playing, and hey presto! They were a blondie tribute band! Suddenly, all these country yokels with straw hats and smocks and bottles of cider rushed to the stage to watch them play most of the tracks from plastic letters and parallel lines, and for an encore they did Sunday Girl, Hanging on the Telephone, and Heart of Glass. It was a brilliant gig, 
And the yokels threw bunches of roses onto the stage and uh, even some bales of hay. And at the end, Thomas Hardy took my hand and said, Go back to your time and show them all you know. So I said goodbye to Tess as she winked and blew me a kiss. And the purple smoke billowed around me. And yeah, I was back at home. Well, I was well stoked. I got the local paper, and in the classified ads there was a local band looking for a drummer. No time wasters, it said. So I knew I was okay. And I got on the phone and booked an audition. And I went over the next day with dreams of getting famous and doing Wembley. And I went into the rehearsal room and picked up the sticks and... I was rubbish. It just wasn't there in my hands. Whatever I played in Thomas Hardy's study in Maxgate, it had gone. I was hopeless. I couldn't keep time. I couldn't make it mine. The drum kit was hating me. It was like I'd never held the sticks in my life. The band started laughing at me so much I was worried I'd have to ring for an ambulance to deal with three cardiac cases. So I got out of the room pronto and came home. To put it mildly, I was very miffed. I wanted to go back to 1890 and ask this Thomas Hardy what he was playing at, but there were no more copies of the book in the shop. So I came home, made myself two sad and disappointed slices of cheese on toast, and started to think. Maybe the past can't really teach us anything. You could buy the complete works of Thomas Hardy tomorrow and think it will be a catalog of the dangers of the heart. And you could use all this education as a shield, a wall against the problems round the corner. But at crucial times you will find yourself forgetting those lessons. How often do we repeat the same mistakes? And it's frightening to think we can make the same mistakes as our parents and our parents' parents, and the same mistakes as some characters in a novel written in 1890. Reason and education? They're all very well. But if our emotions are strong enough, well, they go out the window. And I guess if we're honest, we all know intelligent and educated friends who have better jobs than us and more money than us, but who keep getting romantically involved with the wrong choices, and we can never understand it as their lives unravel. So maybe the past is useless. Perhaps this was the real lesson from Thomas Hardy. Maybe what he was really telling me was that you can go to great efforts learning loads of stuff, but at crucial times it's like you never really bothered. But I'm no fool. I'm not an idiot. I don't want to believe I'm destined to make the same errors. I don't want to believe I'm that blind or dumb. I like to think I'm streetwise and sharp. And I like to think that, okay, although I've made mistakes, I never make them twice. I don't believe in standing still, and I'm very good at cheering myself up. For example, this morning I bought myself a copy of Learn to Play Bass Guitar with Virginia Woolf. <laughs> The winners of the 2011 Dwarf Stars Award for Speculative Poetry, Ten Lines and Under, have been announced. Congratulations to Julie Bloss Kelsey for her poem Comet, Sonia Taff for Tapping the Vine, and Anne K. Schwader for Returning. If you are interested in reading all of the nominated poems, the Science Fiction Poetry Association has published the annual Dwarf Stars Anthology. It's available on their website. It's excellent and a lot of fun to read.
Balticon, which takes place in Baltimore, Maryland, on May 25th through the 28th, 2012, is conducting a poetry contest with cash prizes. You can find more info on the Balticon website. The nominations for the 2012 Bram Stoker Awards have been finalized. Up for the Poetry Collection Award are Linda Addison for How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend. Maria Alexander for At Loose Ends, Poetry for the Decadent, the Damned, and the Absinthe-Minded. Bruce Boston for Surrealities. G.O. Clark for Shroud of Night. Marge Simon for The Mad Hattery and for her other collection, The Unearthly Delights. So that brings us to the end of our tour of time travel on Poetry Planet. Join me next time when we have a look at the moon. This is me. Signing out. I put a link onto Diane's site, and if you want to go over there, Diane's got all the links for all the poems and everything like that. If one of them catches your eye or catches your ear, do let us know. So that is Starship Sova's show 229. A couple of little things. On the Tales to Terrify, this week and next week, we are running all the Bram Stoker Award stories or Best Short Stories. Well, actually, not called Best Short Stories. got a different name. But Larry's over there at the helm. So if you want to listen to them stories, we're playing three this week and three next week. I've even got a Stephen King, by God, story as well. Larry's had to sign a document. <laughs> Declaration of oh, just a... Keep it, you know, so we're all kind of running around the same hymn sheet and don't, we don't get up to any naughty business. So it's Larry's name on the on the sheet. <laughs> yes, do do go over there and do pop over if you're interested in our writer's workshop. There's only a few days left for that as well. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that liberation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.